Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hey, friends, welcome to episode 16. Today, I'm going to talk to Kimberly Duffy. Actually, I talked to Kimberly Duffy way back in September. That's when I interviewed her, and I'm just releasing the episode now, um, mostly because we had a whole bunch of other interviews that needed to be released sooner because of their their book's release coincided or fell close to the release date of the podcast. But I've been anxious to get this interview out to you. Um, Kimberly Duffy is an author of historical fiction, obviously. She's a homeschooling mama of four. She's a lover of travel, history, and food. So I absolutely loved Kimberly's debut novel, A Mosaic of Wings, that was released in May. Um, and that I will link to in the show notes so you can get to it. And it would make a fantastic Christmas gift for any woman or girl um, from about 14 or 15 on up. Um, my daughter, who's 14, read it and she loved it too. So um, I just wanted to kind of offer a little bit of a content warning about this episode because we do get into some of the um, human trafficking problems in in India as we're talking about the book and some of the themes in the book. So um, it's a fantastic conversation. So if you have little ones and you don't want them to hear that kind of content, then maybe come back to it later. But otherwise, dive right into our conversation with Kim. Kimberly Duffy, welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Thank you. It's great to be here. Your debut novel, A Mosaic of Wings, released in May. What can you tell us about this book? Well, A Mosaic of Wings is about a woman named Nora Shipley, who is an entomology graduate of Cornell University, set in 1885. Entomology, which is the study of insects, which isn't a very typical career choice for a heroine. <laughs> um, but she is super set on securing the scholarship so she can continue her education and get a master's. She's run through her inheritance and she needs money to continue with that. Her stepfather's not supportive of her, so he's not going to pay for it. And she also wants to be given control of her late father's scientific journal, with her step, which her stepfather now runs. And he says, you know, if you're able to finish school and get your master's, then I'll go ahead and hand it over to you. So she's offered the opportunity to travel to India, and she thinks this will look really good to the scholarship committee. And so she travels over there with another um, schoolmate, and she goes to work in the field. And she mainly does illustrations, but she's hopeful she'll find like, like discover a new insect or be able to make a name for herself in the world of entomology. And she ends up discovering, now Nora's really driven. So she ends up discovering yeah. while she's there that um, life is a little bit more than success. And she falls in love with um, India, with even with her career choice, with a very special man and um, just with <laughs> the country. Right. Oh, it's, and it's, it's a great book. Um, it's also, it's, beautiful. I mean, when I got it and took it out of the envelope, I was just like, so excited because the cover is just gorgeous. But yeah, they and, did. When I took it out of the cover, I wasn't expecting like the embossment, like the, the butterflies yes. and the title are embossed. And it's so like, it just feels really nice in your hand. It's just a really, really beautifully it designed does. book. Yes. Um, so I understand you spent time in India yourself. Mm -hmm. Did your time there inspire this novel? Or how, how was that? connected to your writing this book? 
Um, not initially, no. Yeah, I did nonprofit work in India with my now husband. He wasn't at the time. But um, mm-hmm. we, we lived there for about six months. And um, I'd always wanted to set a book in India, but I never really considered it. I mean, I knew the research would be kind of a lot to handle. So when I was when I was writing this but well when i was planning the book before i started writing i was i'm a plotter so i was plotting like scenes and you know mm-hmm. discovering my character and my daughter actually inspired the book my 13 year old daughter grania she's wanted to be an entomologist since she was five mm-hmm. so i this was my first historical wow. novel i'd written a few um contemporary romances and i'd written this really awful fantasy book <laughs> but this is my first <laughs> historical novel so i was like to my family like, i'm finally going to write a historical i love historical fiction and my daughter's like mom you should write about a female entomologist um and i was like what no <laughs> crazy <laughs> crazy girl no one wants to read about someone who likes bugs but it i was like well that's i mean that's a hook you know like there's not a lot of yeah. books especially in the in the christian market about about female entomologists, even female scientists. There are a few authors who write about them consistently, like Elizabeth Camden, but um, mm-hmm. not a whole lot. But um, so I was like, well, let me just think about this. So I discovered Nora through that process. And then I had planned the book and I was talking to another author friend, um, Christy Cambrin. And she's like, I really feel like you should send Nora somewhere interesting. She's like with the bug thing. And like, she's just super adventurous. Like maybe you can set it somewhere really cool. Do you have any experience anywhere that's different than here? I was like, well, I lived in India and there are a lot of bugs in India. (laughs) So I'm like, I think I could do that. So then I kind of shifted half the book to be set in India. Yeah. The descriptions of India are just so rich and beautiful that it feels like you're there as the reader. So um, I guess it's not surprising that you spent time there. Yeah, I really, I really want India to be almost like another character because it is an amazing place. And it's unlike any other place in the world. Like just being there feels like you just feel like you're in India. And I wanted that to come across in the book. So I was very intentional with my descriptions to help the reader feel like they were immersed in it. Right. Yeah, it definitely felt that way. So was it intimidating to try to represent India to people who've never been there? Um, It seems like racial segregation was a big part of the culture at the time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was very intimidating. (laughs) I think it's always going to be intimidating to write a book set in a place you're not from, because especially a place you love, like I really wanted to do, I really wanted to do it justice. Um, I wanted people to understand my heart for the country. I love India. I love India. And I wanted that to come across. Um, There's not, there's not really any, not since the nineties, there's not been any Christian novels published set in India. Um, There was a series of books published in the mid nineties, but since then there's been nothing. And so, and there's, we don't learn a whole lot about Indian history in the United States. So I wanted to make sure that I was as accurate as possible and as fair as possible and as sensitive as possible because mm-hmm. I don't, I didn't want it to come across as though I was telling someone else's story from like a Western perspective, you know, like my character is American and I'm American. And so obviously it was going to be told through her perspective, but I wanted there to be enough accurate history that people really understood what it was like. So right. I was, it was, it was a little intimidating. Not gonna lie. <laughs> like, it was very intimidating. And I was very nervous. I was really nervous. I just wanted to do it justice. And so I was careful to, do a lot. I did a lot of research. Um, but I was, I also have a sensitivity reader who lives in Calcutta. Um, Mm -hmm. and she did a fantastic job of just pointing out areas that I may have gotten 
incorrect or may have come across in a way that wasn't my intention. So she, I mean, she combed through my book. She's amazing. She reads all of my books um, just to make sure that I'm writing things in a way that is sensitive and loving. Right. That's good. So your protagonist, in addition to being an entomologist, Mm -hmm. um, she's skilled. And I mean, this kind of goes hand in hand because she's drawing and painting the insects that she collects. Do you, are you a skilled artist too? Do you have a a love of, (laughs) do you have artistic talent? (laughs) No. No. I I like the idea of it. Like, I really love the idea of being artistic. (laughs) And for a brief moment in high school, I thought maybe I might have some like innate talent, but I really don't. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Not at all. So how did you go about um, learning about that and, and explaining how, how she worked? So a lot of that was based on my experience as a Charlotte Mason homeschooler. It's Charlotte Mason is a philosophy of education that is um, driven by like living books and nature study and admiring and understanding artwork. And so I've incorporated that into my own homeschool with my own children. And we spend a lot of time with sketchbooks outside, even though none of us are really terrific at it, but we spend (laughs) a lot of time with sketchbooks outside and just, um, studying, like, you know, just studying like an earthworm and then drawing it and then going inside and learning about it. Um, and looking at a daffodil and trying to like make it look on the page what it looks like in real life. It never does. (laughs) My, my daughter's a little bit better than I am. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, I feel like study is a big part of that and just watching things. And so we spend a lot of time doing that. And I have studied, um, like Anna Comstock, who's in the book. She's like the mother of nature study. So she was a very talented artist and writer and she created the entire subject. She, she's the first one who got people outside studying nature outside, um, and kids in particular. So she's been a big part of our homeschool. And in researching about her, I kind of um, took a few of her skills and things that she'd done and kind of put them in my book. And I just studied that whole entire subject to get a sense of how people would have, how people would have illustrated books. I actually bought a couple of illustrated like nature books from the time and just studied that and transposed that into my book. But no, I'm not, I'm not any good at it. I wish I were, but I'm not. (laughs) So I also was wondering if you have, because your the book begins at Cornell University. Mm-hmm. Do you have a connection to Cornell, or um, how did you decide to use that as the setting? Yeah, no, I don't. You know, I'd never even been to Ithaca until after okay. my book was published. But I am from New York, so I kind of felt like that would work. But right. no, I I actually just I knew my character needed to be an entomologist, and I knew she she needed to go to a school that that accepted female students. So I just mm-hmm. googled, <laughs> I went on Google, and I was like, you know, nineteenth um, century entomology programs in colleges with women. <laughs> I think that's exactly what I googled, and Cornell University came up, and I started reading about the history of the school and. Um, they've always been very liberal and very open about admittance. And so they were one of the first colleges to have female students and African-American students and um, the first to have female and African-American staff. So I felt like they would be a really great place to send my character because I knew that there would be a little more of an understanding of her in that place. Yeah, that's cool. I actually, um, I know people who've gone to Cornell because oh, okay. I live in Northeastern Pennsylvania. I'm only a, a few hours away from it. But um, I 
did not know all that history of it. So that was really interesting to learn. Yeah. And and I discovered after, after I decided to send her there, that's when I discovered that Anna and John Comstock went there, taught there. I hadn't even known that. So that's when I decided to put them in the book, which was a really nice connection point. I didn't even know that. So that was really great. And my 13 year old is dead set on going to Cornell for veterinary school. We'll see if that (laughs) works out for her. Oh, she's not going to be an entomologist now? She she decided that they don't make enough money. <laughs> she, oh. <laughs> she's very driven by, by money. And so she wants to minor in that and okay. do research, but she also wants to be a vet, um, like a big animal vet. She wants to yeah. travel with her work. Wow, that's cool. So it seems like a good time to maybe expand on your research process because you kind of touched on it a little bit. Tell me more about how you research for your books. Um, I research a lot. I I start by reading a ton of books and just kind of poking around websites and saving those to Pinterest. And, um, I read a lot of living books from the era. So biographies and travel journals, diaries, there is an Mm -hmm. electronic archive called, uh, J S T O R. And you can find like really obscure articles on things like, um, like the history of wax candles in India, you know, right? <laughs> like 19th century houses in Calcutta, like what you can, things you can't find anywhere else. You're going to find it on there. I yeah. look at, I find the best, the best way to research is looking at old photographs. And I'm lucky because the, the time period I write, that's when photography was kind of emerging and had a Renaissance. And so I like mm-hmm. looking at photographs because you see things in photographs that you can't really get a sense of in articles and books. Um, they give kind of a really, really great sense of place. Um, I look at old maps so that I can make sure I get streets and railways, railways, right. And businesses. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not really too organized about my research, which I really need to, I really need to be better about it. I'm organized about everything else in my life, but my research is just a hodgepodge of like (laughs) Pinterest posts and copied like portions of online books and word documents that I save all over my computer. I usually mm-hmm. inevitably forget about half of them. And then during rewrites, I'll stumble upon it and have to like fit things in. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not really organized. I really need to be better about it, <laughs> but I do oh, love I research and I tend to get on like rabbit trails and I, I can spend mm-hmm. hours researching something that I really shouldn't be spending that time doing. I should be spending <laughs> that time writing, <laughs> but, right. but it's just so fascinating. Yeah. I do that too. <laughs> Sometimes it leads to another book idea, you know, you never know. Yeah, yeah, it does. Absolutely. Of course, then you have to figure out where you put the idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So um, there's a subplot in A Mosaic of Wings about a young girl at risk of being sent into temple prostitution. Mm -hmm. What led you to include that subplot in the book? Um, Well, like I said, I plot my books, but I didn't plot her. Her name is Sita. I didn't plot her. She Mm -hmm. just showed up. So that was kind of a little surprise. Um, yeah, I wasn't expecting her at all. Um, so my husband and I are involved in an organization that works with women and children rescued from sex trafficking in India and Nepal. It's mm-hmm. always been, it's always been something that's been dear to my heart, like this entire issue. I've yeah. always been really interested in working for change in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's an important part of our life. We've spent a lot of hours and time and effort and money trying to work for change in that. So when Sita popped up, um, I kind of decided that I wanted to fit that thread in there. It, it's an issue. It's a bigger issue today than it was in the 19th century. So right. in 19th century India, before the British came, um, there was a form of temple prostitution and it wasn't, um, how do I phrase this? 
it wasn't considered a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So these women were very well taken care of. They had a position of respect and honor. If they had any children, their children were legitimized. They were, you know, some of them became very wealthy. And then after the British came, the British brought their ideas of prostitution and their position was degraded. Mm. And so the British established places where they could go see prostitutes, especially before they imported them from England and Europe. Um, mm. They set it, they set up kind of like, brothels for Indian women. And so it degraded right. their position. And now I'm not saying either way is good, right? right. I mean, it's still degradation of women and devaluing of women. But um, their their life certainly plummeted after that. Right. Um, and so um, temple prostitution was outlawed, but it still happened. And even today, um, there is a caste of, of prostitutes in India, and they're very poorly treated. They're almost outcast there. Mm. There's a lot of AIDS and disease and abuse. And so, um, and even outside of that, I mean, India has one of the largest red light districts in the world. It's, it's in um, Calcutta. Wow. So it's a real issue. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of sex tourism. So people come from the United States and go to India and abuse children. A lot of um, Nepalese girls are trafficked out of Nepal and brought to India and there's just, mm-hmm. it's really hard to track them, to find them, to rescue them. And then once they're out of it, there's a stigma. So these girls really struggle to make a life for themselves. Um, and so we, we've worked with, with local nonprofits in India and they offer safe homes and counseling and job security. They teach, so we teach them English and then because in India, if you want to go to college, you have to know English because it's all taught in English. Like mm-hmm. the language of government and commerce and education is all English. So they're able to go to college. They're able to get better paying jobs because they know it and they speak it well. And so it's a little thing we can do from home that has a really big impact. Right. That's great. The whole the whole situation is so heartbreaking, but that's yeah. wonderful that you're able to do something. It is heartbreaking. And it, it can seem overwhelming. And so I think if you look at the big picture, it's like, well, I can't do anything. This is too right. big of an issue. But I can do this little tiny part. Mm-hmm. And maybe that'll change one person's life. And then it's worth it. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so can we go back in time mm-hmm. <laughs> to when you first started writing? Have you been yeah. writing all your life? Or when did you start? Um, I've been writing a really long time. I think I have a pretty typical story in that I grew up loving books. I was a bit of a bookworm. I'd rather mm-hmm. I'd rather like snuggle my bed with a book than do almost anything else growing up. And then when I was 12, I wrote my first short story. It was about an inchworm. And then when, mm. and then right after that, I wrote my second first like my second short story, which was a romance. Mm. Um, and I was kind of hooked on the romance thing even at 12, right? Which is kind of funny because I'm not in real life a particularly romantic person, <laughs> but I love the, I love the give and take and the struggle and the compromise. Like I love that story. So, um, when I was, I just, I wrote, I wrote fiction all through high school. And then, um, I went to India, worked in nonprofit, got married, like came home, got married and didn't really do a whole lot. I would write things here or there. And then I had children I did the mm-hmm. Christian Writers Guild and wrote a little bit through that whole process. It's a two-year process. Okay. And then my husband was in college and working full-time, like working two jobs. He was working a lot. He was never home. I didn't I didn't have time to write. So there was like a five-year period where I wrote nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and then 
three days after he graduated, he came home and he handed me my laptop and said, go to Panera and write your book. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) that's great. Yeah. I, well, let me backtrack before I had kids. I did write my fantasy novel. Um, Mm, I wrote that in like six months, but, um, yeah. And then I didn't write for a really long time. And so I wrote two contemporary romances, had another kid, wrote this historical and wrote another historical and finally was able to get a contract with Bethany house for my, for a mosaic of wings and then two additional books set in India. Oh, wow. That's great. Um, so how, how did that process go? Like, how did you get your agent? How did you land on Bethany house? Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. I've, I've always known I wanted to be with Bethany house. They were at the top of my list. Um, Mm -hmm. I had a lot of friends at Bethany House and they were all happy. Every single one of them were yeah. happy. I'd heard just such amazing things. I love Bethany House books. I love their covers. Some of my favorite authors wrote for Bethany House. Mm-hmm. And I had met with some editors at conferences and I was always really impressed with them. So um, I knew I wanted to be with them. Right. I just went to conferences and I met some people and I built my network and I knew who I wanted my agent to be. So I submitted to her through a friend and she signed me. And then I met my editor at the Blue Ridge Christian Writers Conference. And this was kind of a long process. So I met her and she really liked the idea of a mosaic of wings. It was called something different at the time, but she really liked the idea. And she's like, I can just see the cover, how beautiful it can be. Like, I really like this. Um, And we hit it off. And so she asked me to send her my complete manuscript, which I did. And I didn't hear anything for over a year. Like oh, nothing. No. It was crickets. Yeah. I heard nothing. Oh, and I was like, what is going on? So I just kind of worked on the next book, you know, cause that's what you do. Um, yeah. Did you already then, have your agent at this point? No, I didn't. I signed okay. with her in the middle of the process. Yeah. Okay. And so I signed with my agent and then I just wrote my next book and then probably about a year. I, don't, I mean, I don't know the dates, but maybe a, a year and two or three months after I submitted my manuscript to my editor, she came back at me with an, um, with a, like a rewrite, right. She wanted me to rewrite, do some rewrites. Mm. And so I did. And then I sent the rewrites back to her and it was like six months or whatever. <laughs> I think I had another rewrite in there. I mean, it was months. It was between the time, between the time I sent her the manuscript and I signed the contract, it was over two years. Wow. And then she came back and said that she was bringing it to pub board and, um, they came back. So originally a mosaic wings was going to be the first book in a three book series that was going to mm-hmm. follow two other characters in the book, Rose and Bitsy. Okay. Um, but they came back and said they, they really liked the India angle and they want to know if I could write two additional books set in India. So I had, I mean, I think I did this in two or three days. I wrote, I wrote two more book blurbs and sent it to them. I, that was so stressful. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to come up with two novel ideas set in 19th century India. <laughs> When you know nothing about anything, like I would have an idea and I'd be like, I don't even know if this is possible. Like what? I was frantically talking to like a couple like my writer's group, a couple of writer friends, like, I don't know what I'm doing, but we sent it in and they liked the ideas. So they offered me like a three book contract and I was just beside myself. I was like, I will do anything you want me to do. (laughs) I want so badly to be a Bethany House author. I will write anything. Wow. So I actually just finished writing book three. Book two is almost completely done with edits. I have one more edit and it's done. It's going to release in March. And that that book has become such, it's so special to me and it's so personal. Mm -hmm. And then I just finished writing book three and I'm waiting to get back my first revision. Yeah. Which I've heard is a grueling process, I guess. (laughs) It's 
Yeah. I mean, I don't mind edits so much. I don't love content edits because I write very methodically. And so if you change one thing in the middle, you have to go and change everything. Yes. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like I have to be very organized about it. And I print things out and I do things in order. So that's not my favorite part. I do love line edits. And then once you get past those, everything's just kind of refining. And I like that part a lot. It's just the process and it is, I mean, it's what it is and you want to put out the best book you possibly can. So it's worth every single revision. Right. Absolutely. Um, So what was it like to launch your debut novel during a pandemic? Oh, oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I I might've like blacked that out. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't everything I dreamt of and hoped for for 20 years. That's for sure. (laughs) I might've had a few, a few moments where I wept. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Bethany house was very supportive and I have a lot of author friends who came together and were like, you know, we're going to help one another and share each other's books and do these kind of these um, giveaways and social media stuff um, and do these like video interviews with each other just to kind of support one another and help one another out during this. Um, But yeah, everything was like my book signing was canceled. My book signings were canceled. All the conferences were canceled. All my speaking engagements were canceled. My release party, which I know doesn't have a real impact on sales, but it was that celebration I was looking forward to most to celebrate yes. my like local friends and family. I was going to do it locally and we were going to have a big party. And so many people have walked through this process with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to mention my parents and my siblings and my friends, right. you know, they've walked through this with me and they were so excited. They wanted to celebrate with me. I wanted to celebrate with them and we couldn't do that. And that was a really tough pill to swallow. Um, mm. It was hard. I had to grieve. I had to allow myself to grieve the fact that it wasn't going to look the way I had dreamt for so long. So it was a struggle. It was hard, but, um, and yeah, things were different, but my book is out in the world. Um, and I think the, the stranger thing that happened during that time was that I was in the middle of writing the second book and I started the second book. I started writing it in February and it's set in, um, not the second book, the third book. I'm sorry. I was writing the third book. Yeah, the second book was done. I was writing the third book and it's set in Pune in during the 19th century during the bubonic plague epidemic. <laughs> so wow. I'm writing this book set during a oh, wow. plague epidemic. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I'm facing this like global epidemic and yeah. living it. And there's a lot of really strange similarities between how the two epidemics were handled. Hmm. Like for instance, in in Pune, if you had the bubonic plague, you were isolated in the plague hospital and your, your friends and family weren't allowed to see you. And so there were all these people dying alone, <laughs> like with doctors instead yeah. of with loved ones. And you heard of these stories happening here during, you know, COVID. Right. And I was like, this is just really strange. Like it, that took a lot of like mental energy to get through because I was writing what was happening in real life. Yeah. I'm sure you probably would rather write something completely different than... Yeah, it felt it felt very strange. Um, but at the same time, it also really helped me process things in a way that I wouldn't have been able to. Mm. I mean, I was able to process things with my characters in a way that <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to if I hadn't been writing this book. So that was helpful. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> it was very true. odd, though. <laughs> I'm sure. It just, I mean, it seems like everybody has these stories from quarantine that are, like, everybody's story is different. Mm-hmm. And yet, they're 
everybody had to grieve something. Mm-hmm. Um, so for you, it was, yeah, this like lifelong dream you had of releasing right. a book wasn't what you thought it would be. And you mentioned, um, you know, I don't know. That's just, it's like tragic for it's, it's how your life was affected. So a lot of times we kind of like step back and say, well, I don't have it that bad. Like we have what we need. There are people suffering more than I am, but still that you're mm-hmm. in your story that made such a difference for your life. Um, and so that's, that's hard. Yeah. Um, and then also you had mentioned before we started recording, you mentioned that, um, you had a time like during quarantine where you were like for, forgetful and, and mm-hmm. disorganized. And I, I, was thinking, well, but also you had a book coming out, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so I'm sure that, that, that affected it, um, that I think you'd be overwhelmed and scattered to begin with. And then right. at a pandemic and not being able to be with people and not having things that you thought were going to happen, <laughs> right? happening, um, having to completely reassess and reorganize that whole mm-hmm. time must've been very stressful. Yeah, it it was incredibly stressful. And also, um, I had been planning for a year, I'd been planning on taking my oldest daughter on a trip to Paris, which had been her dream since she was three or four. And so I take each of my kids as they reach 15, 16, I take them on a trip just with me. Um, And so this whole trip was planned, like we were going to spend eight days in Paris and four days in the south with a friend. And we had our Airbnb, our tickets, everything was planned. Yeah. And and that was that was going to be in April. So that was, um, mm. that was canceled. And that was, that was really hard to go through. I mean, it was hard for me because I was looking forward to it. And I was looking forward to spending time with my daughter, really looking, I mean, I have four kids, so it's hard to give each individual right. child that intense focus. And I was very much looking forward to spending this time with her. And so that, and she just, I mean, she didn't even want to talk about it. The day we were supposed to leave, I was like, do you want to eat some macarons and, and go through the Louvre on, online? She's like, mom, I just want to hide in my room with mm. a novel and not think about it. Like it was so hard for, oh, and it just broke I my can't. heart watching her. Yeah, so I yeah, imagine. we, I mean, we had to give up that. And then my husband all of a sudden was working from home and we live in a very small house and I have four kids. My mm-hmm. second grader was sent home. I homeschooled my older two at the time. Um, and my second grader was in public school cause she's on an IEP and she was sent home. And so I had to figure out all of that. Mm. And yeah, it was, it was a lot. It, I mean, looking back, obviously I was going to feel scattered. Right. <laughs> Everything was just tipped over. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it been hard I think we all were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you had to deal with on top of that, this crazy epidemic that no one knew anything about. Right. And my husband's grandmother, who's 85 lives with us. And so oh, wow. we were concerned about her. Um, yeah. It was just, it was crazy. It was a crazy time. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, we also, actually, my husband and I celebrate 20 years of marriage this December, and we had a trip planned for August. We were going mm-hmm. to Paris as well. So, oh, we, <laughs> but so yeah. So, you mentioned that you finished the second one, and you mentioned mm-hmm. the third one. And so, you've just finished writing the, the draft of, of the first draft of the third one? Yes. Is that right? Okay. Can you tell us more about the second and third book? Um, so it, uh, the second book is A Tapestry of Light, and it releases in March. And you can find pre-order links. I mean, they're everywhere right now. They're on Amazon, yeah. although for some reason the link is broken right now. I need to figure mm-hmm. out what's going on with that. But they're, they're at Baker Books, Big House, and Barnes & Noble, everywhere, Target, wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about a woman named Audley who is 
Um, today she would be called Anglo-Indian. In the 19th century, she was called Eurasian. Mm-hmm. She was of Indian and English heritage. It's set um, in half the book is set in Calcutta, which is my favorite Indian city. I love Calcutta. Um, I was really excited to set a book there. It's set in Calcutta and she does beetle wing embroidery, which is mm-hmm. the casings. It's not the actual wings. It's the casings of a particular beetle, the jewel beetle that they, they use in traditional Indian art. They use it to embroider shoes and bags and dresses and shawls It's a traditional craft. And so mm-hmm. her grandmother did it, her mother did it and she does it. And she does it to support her grandmother and her brother, her little brother, Thaddeus. Her mother's just been killed in a, in a, horrible accident and her father and two siblings died years ago um, during a cholera epidemic. So during this time in the beginning of the book, there's kind of family secrets that come to light and she has to move to England with her brother. So there's a lot of straddling two different worlds. She's, she was raised by a British father and an Indian mother and grandmother. So there's a lot of figuring out her place in this new world and not really feeling like she's fully part of either one of them about it's a, it's a book about home um, and where, where you belong and, and who we are, like, who are we? So that's the second book. And then the third book, which we just decided on a title, but I'm not, I haven't released that yet is like I said, set during the Pune plague epidemic. And it's about a, an American kind of like an early photojournalist. She's a photographer mm-hmm. and she travels all over the country with her Kodak camera and writes these kind of travel articles for this women's magazine. And she is sent to India to do her work there. Okay. Wow. Do you think you'll ever go back and write um, the books that you had in mind when you thought you were going to write a trilogy? About- yes. 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 Rose's book is actually already written. That's okay. the book I wrote when I was waiting to hear back from um, Bethany yeah. House. Uh-huh. And then Bitsy's book is plotted and planned. So I've actually, um, I've actually pitched my next set of books to my editor. So we're working on deciding which ones we're going to do um, and bring to Pubboard. So hopefully one or both of those will be in that and I'll get to tell those stories too. But they will probably release as a standalone. As mm-hmm. So what are you hoping readers will get out of your books? Um, I hope, well, first of all, I hope that they enjoy them and they're entertained. Um, I mean, I write to entertain and, but underneath that, I hope, first of all, I hope that they learn a little bit about Indian history and they maybe want to even visit. I mean, not now, obviously, but after when things are normal again, um, it's, it's an, it's a really an amazing place. I've been twice. Um, I spent a significant amount of time there when I was younger. And then I went again two summers ago and mm. my husband and I are planning on taking our children for an extended visit in a year or two, like wow. months long visit to travel the entire country and do some more nonprofit work with some friends we have there. But um, it's a really incredible place to visit. There's nowhere else like it in the entire world. It just yeah. absorbs you. It's completely chaotic and overstimulating, <laughs> and colorful and generous and warm and beautiful. So beautiful. Um, so I hope people would, would, will maybe be prompted to learn more about it and visit underneath that. Um, I hope people come away with a sense of knowing that even when our own plans don't work out, like we can trust God to be faithful to what he's called us to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. is I mean, that theme was definitely in this book is that theme in 
in the other two books as well? Um, no, no, not in particular. Um, Tapestry of Light is is very much a faith story. It's very much my faith story and my struggle with doubt and questions mm. and being raised in, in a Christian home and then being forced to confront the fact that I never made my faith my own. And so my character experiences a little bit of that. Um, it's mm. about belonging and, and worth and value. Okay. So um, you have four kids and you homeschool mm. them. Yes. Um, so when do you write? <laughs> I have no idea. It happens. <laughs> um, I I do most of my writing in the evenings and on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I have a very supportive husband. So he works during the day while I'm doing the homeschool thing and the mom thing. And then after dinner, he will take the kids outside to play and do bath time and bedtime and all that stuff. And yeah. do like he's teaching them. Um, web design. So he'll do their web design class or guitar lessons or whatever. Um, nice. And then I'll work for a few hours in the evening. And then Saturdays, I work almost all day Saturdays. And sometimes I'll work after church on Sundays. And I know you're supposed to have a day of rest. But at this point, like, it's really the only time I can write. So right. and I'm not the type of person I know some people are like, well, take 15 minutes here and 10 minutes there. I cannot do that. Yeah, I need I, a chunk of time. I can't do that either. I need longer stretch. Yeah. So I just write in the evenings and on the weekends. You make it work. Well, also because I, I homeschool, I'm always around people and I'm an introvert, very oh, introverted. Yes. And I need a lot of time to decompress or I feel like I'm going crazy and they're always there. <laughs> My mm-hmm. kids are always there and always talking. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't mind that I have to work in the evenings because it gives me a few hours where I can just be with my thoughts. Right. That's true. It's <laughs> good. Um, so how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life today? I think the biggest thing about history is that it helps us feel less alone in life, in our suffering and grief, um, mm-hmm. even in our joys. I remember when I was pregnant with my first, um, she was born in January. So it was the very end of my pregnancy. It was around Christmas time. And I just left church where we had, like, they had done like a whole reenactment of the Christmas story. And uh, mm-hmm. we had, were walking around the mall to do some last minute shopping. And every pregnant woman I saw, every mother I saw, I thought this is so cheesy, but I was like, <laughs> we're all connected and we're all connected to Mary. <laughs> and we're all connected to every woman who has ever given birth throughout history. <laughs> oh, but it's true. I, felt, <laughs> I know I felt such like a threat. There was such a threat of connection and hope and joy and life that connected every woman. Like I just felt <laughs> that intensely with my first. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I was too tired to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but we're all, I mean, Every person in history is woven into this fabric of a story and it's so much bigger than just our moment. You're part of such a bigger story. And I feel like sometimes it can make us feel small, but there's a comfort in knowing that, that we're the same. <laughs> like right. we all experience this and there's nothing new under the sun and humanity has survived a long time. And there have been people going through exactly what you're going through. And um, mm-hmm. I also think that, and I love, I love history. I've always been a student of history. I've always read a lot of history. And having done that, it's given me a healthy dose of respect for how far humanity has come. So if you look back a few hundred years ago, you know, or a few thousand years ago, violence and death and loss, like there was so much part of 
the normal human experience. Right. So with four kids, like statistically speaking, if I'd had them in the 19th century, half of them wouldn't have survived childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, all of my kids have a very high likelihood of surviving childhood. Right. Even my craziest child will probably more than likely survive childhood. Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel like you recognize that and, and you can appreciate, you can appreciate that. And then because I write about strong women, you know, and when I was researching for a mosaic of wings, I, I came across a lot of um, just prejudice against women in the workforce and in the scientific community and how hard they would have, they would have had to claw their way to the top. Yes. Everything they earned was through blood, sweat, and tears. Mm -hmm. And some of them would have never made it. Like there would have just been a barrier there and they would not have been able to get through. And so today, I mean, no one would think twice about a woman going on to get her master's and working in the field that she's always wanted to work in. So there's just a lot to be grateful for living in this time and place. And I feel like history, when you study history, it puts that into perspective. Yes, that's true. So to finish up, um, who is your favorite historical fiction author? And what's one of the best historical novels you've read this year? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Can you pick just one? (laughs) Um, hmm. One of my favorite historical Christian authors is Laura Franz. Mm. Um, I love her writing. It is so lyrical. And the way she weaves a story together is it doesn't like hit you over the head. You know, like when you're reading like a suspense novel or a thriller or something, you're like, whack, whack, whack. Like it just keeps coming, you know, (laughs) like her stories are so impactful, but they're so expertly and gently woven together. And they, they just sweep me away. I love everything about her books and I love her as a person, like as a human being, she is kind and wise. Mm -hmm. Um, I absolutely love her. So I would say she's one of my favorite historical authors. I think the one of the best books I've read this year is um, Amanda Dykes, Set the Stars Alight, mm. which is a um, dual that. timeline book. And she is, that's the first book I read by her. And she's amazing. Like this wow. book was incredible. Just so, so good. So good. I'll have to add that to my TBR. I love um, dual timeline, time slip or split time or whatever they want to call them. It, it's a beautiful book. Mm. So Kim, it was great to talk to you. Can you tell me where listeners can buy your books and where they can find you online? Sure. They can find me at www.kimberlyduffy.com. And then you'll find all my books and all the information about me. And then there'll be links to everywhere you can find my books, but you can find them anywhere books are sold like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Baker Bookhouse. Um, and what's the best like social media account to follow you on? What's your favorite? My favorite is Instagram. Yeah. So it's um, Kimberly Duffy author or uh, author Kimberly Duffy. I, one is Facebook and one is Instagram. And I've decided to make them different to make my life harder. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> but if you look up Kimberly Duffy, you'll find me. <laughs> I'm pretty active on Instagram. And then I'm a little active on my Facebook author page, a little less so than Instagram. Um, but yeah, you can find me on Instagram. <laughs> Okay. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Kim. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Well, friends, thank you so much for listening. Um, just a reminder, you can always find the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T.com slash B-L-O-G. If you've been there, 
to check out the show notes after you listen to an episode, you may have noticed that I usually have an affiliate link available and that helps support the show. Um, in the past, they've always been Amazon links, but I recently discovered, well, for a while I've known about a really great website called bookshop.org. And I discovered that I can be an affiliate with Bookshop. So um, in the in the interest of supporting small businesses and bookshops across the country, I'm going to use affiliate links to bookshop.org as much as I can. Because um, small businesses need all the help they can get, especially this year. So if you're interested in purchasing any of Kim's books, please go to my website at alisontreat.com slash blog to find the show notes with links to her books. That way you can support a small business and also support my podcast. Thank you so much for your support. I also, if you like this podcast, can you please take the time to leave a rating and review? That will help new listeners find the podcast. So since Kim writes so much about India and she loves India so much and we talked about it so much, it seemed appropriate to finish this podcast with a quote from Mahatma Gandhi. He said, a small body of determined spirits fired by an unquenchable faith in their mission can alter the course of history. Have a great week, my friends, and keep reading historical fiction.